We'll take a seat if you haven't already. And uh, it's good to be with you up here. Um, Justin remarked last week that it's funny when they ask him to preach, he always seems to get the snake handling passages. And I told him, you know, it's funny because usually when Taylor asks me to preach, one, he leaves town, and two, he gives me, you know, the light and breezy, easy ones that we totally get and feel really good about. Um, Of course, I'm kidding because on the face of it, our text this morning isn't very light or breezy, and it's not very obvious why or how we could be encouraged or helped by God talking about killing kids. But I'm convinced there's a lot more going on here than I think we've been taught to see, and I think there's a lot more that can be helpful or encouraging or uh, paradigm shifting for us. And uh, so I'm, I'm excited to get into this, and uh, you know I'll make that same joke until the day I die, but it is just funny, the same things tend to happen. Um, but I, I wouldn't have it any other way, because I think there's so much more for us in Scripture that we tend to gloss over because it's complicated or produces uh, difficult feelings in us. And so it's easier to just go back to the ones that we know. But there's so much for us to be had in the ones that are hard and the ones that are difficult and the ones that make us feel ways that we don't exactly like. And this is one of those. But also for the same reason, um, I want us to pray again before we get into this because it is heavy. But I also believe that God could speak powerfully to us. So Lord, we, we beg you to please be here. Because if you're not, Lord, even for all of our songs and all of our intentions, if you're not here, God, this is just just religious bread and circus. We'd be better off sleeping in and going to brunch if you're not here. If you don't speak. If your spirit isn't with us more powerfully, Lord, than the breath that's in our lungs, more tangibly than the the chairs or the floors under our feet. If you're not here, if you're not working, this is a profound waste of time. So we beg you, Lord Jesus, send your spirit. Make this more than just ink on a page or words in our ears, but your living breath. Father, send fire from heaven. With the breath of life, fill us. Feed us with real spiritual food. God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear the real Jesus standing here with us. Standing at the table. Offering us real bread to feed our very hungry souls. God, we give this to you. Let your word do its work. In the name of Jesus, amen. So there's a place in Chile that I've never been to called the Atacama Desert. And it is, outside of the polar ice caps, the driest place on the face of the earth. Nestled in this tiny, narrow passageway between the mountains that cut off 
that part, the western part of South America from the lush, overgrown Amazon rainforest and the Pacific Ocean is this strip that runs up and down most of the western coast of South, of South America. And this desert is so dry that even in its higher precipitation seasons, it will get maybe a half inch of precipitation in an entire year. It's one of the driest, most arid, most lifeless places on the planet. Until a couple years ago, when inexplicably there started being an inch of rain in a day, or it would just start coming more regularly and more often. And it obviously prompts conversations about climate change and what's really happening and how could this place that's totally arid and dry and could go years without any sort of rain is now suddenly getting all of this rain. But the most interesting thing about all of that is that, is that when those rains come, these bright purple flowers, or pink flowers, excuse me, pop up out of nowhere. So you could be standing and looking out over miles of just the driest, most bland dirt on the face of this earth. And then just imagine the entire thing just totally changed overnight in the brightest, most vibrant, most beautiful pink you've ever seen in your life. And again, is it climate change? Who knows, right? We don't know enough information to really know what's going on. But something's happening. And if nothing else, it's certainly a reminder that the most arid, the most lifeless, the most uh, life-threatening places can in an instant become the most beautiful. If we simply have the patience, and I think often if we simply have the the imagination to see what could be. And the same thing when we come to a text like this where uh, there's a lot of harsh realities. Some of them we gloss over because we're used to them. We've heard the Exodus story. We've watched the Prince of Egypt. We've uh, seen Charlton Heston and Ten Commandments. This all has become so familiar to us that we just sort of read it passively. And we get through it and we get to the next thing. We know these details. But if we stop long enough and we let ourselves uh, feel the arid, hopeless longing of a people that had been imprisoned for hundreds of years until all of a sudden something starts to happen. Until all of a sudden when it seems like this invincible, impenetrable, uh, inconquerable world power that one thing after another begins to expose actually the weakness and the vulnerability and the susceptibility to being overthrown. Again, in just an instant. That what we have before us is a very interesting, uh, very interesting reminder that God, when it comes to God's grace and God's judgment, that we often get them mixed up that usually when we think of God's judgment, well, that's when he's really active and that's when he's really pounding the fist and that's when he really gets down and dirty and starts doing something. When actually, what we see playing out in this story, what we see playing out in most of the Bible is that God's judgment is best described the way Paul puts it in Romans chapter one, that he's simply letting go. He's simply 
giving us over. No longer holding back the natural consequences and the cascading trouble that comes of the mess that we make, of our insistence of having our own way. God's judgment is him going, okay. When it's actually God's grace that is constantly intervening, constantly acting, constantly causing things to happen or not allowing things to be done at all. Because what we find when we look at Exodus 11 and we wrestle with uh, all that God is about to do to the people of both both for the people of Israel and to the people of Egypt, what we find is not God coming in this uh, sort of fiery anger that can't be contained, but it's actually God just taking off his hands and just saying, okay, you get to sleep in the bed you've made. And yet God's grace is still restraining and covering and protecting and providing for his people. So this becomes a fascinating study in what happens when grace gives way to karma. When God lets us to reap the things that we've sown or when he intervenes. When we begin to wrestle with this, there's something that struck me not too long ago. It's that often we're, we're so sure that we know when God's blessing someone and we're so sure that we know when he's disciplining or judging someone. But what struck me is the realization that letting someone have their success, letting someone have what they have so wanted and pursued after and given themselves over just might be God giving them over. And God keeping you struggling, waiting with unfulfilled hopes just might be God's gift to you. It just might be his grace. And we can't be so quick to be so sure that we know which one is which. We have to be careful. We have to be patient. We have to be willing to let the Lord show us what he is up to. And I think this text together helps us, helps both our imagination and our faith sort of wrestle with that and get some idea of the things that God could be doing in either success or failure, in either struggle or ease or comfort, whatever it is. And looking at these first three verses together in chapter 11, the thing that I want us to recognize is that grace enriches what suffering steals. Grace enriches what suffering steals. In verse one, we're told that the Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and Egypt and afterward he will let you go from here. Verse two, speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Keep in mind that 400 years ago, when Joseph and his brothers and his father were brought down to the land of Egypt, they were already wealthy. They already had a lot. And that by virtue of Joseph having been raised up into the courts of Pharaoh, being second in command over the entire nation, he himself was a wealthy man. They were an incredibly wealthy people. 
They had possessions, they had financial security, they had position, they had influence, they had all of the things that most of us really are striving hard after. But we're told in the early chapters of Exodus that eventually a Pharaoh rose up that remembered not Joseph. And as is often the case throughout history, throughout time, throughout culture, uh, when you start to realize that there is this other group of people that uh, seems bigger, possibly more threatening, what happens? Fear wins the day. And so this once people that was treated as a gift, as uh, someone that had saved civilization was now treated as a threat, and so began Israel's descent into slavery in Egypt. And so slowly but surely, over time, everything that God had given to Abraham and that he gave to his son Isaac, that he gave to his son Jacob, that he gave to his sons, was slowly bled away because of fear. And yet in one of these acts, as God is exposing Egypt for all of its weakness, when God is beginning to do his redeeming work, is it then any surprise that God gives them this odd sort of favor that they can just go to their neighbors and say, hey, can you give me some of your gold? And they just hand it over. That Moses, who was at one time treated like a vigilante for killing another Egyptian and was run out of town, now these very same people, this entire nation is saying, he's one of the best people we've got. Whatever he wants, we'll do for him. Whatever he needs, we'll give to him. It's such an odd, subtle turn of events. And yet it's exactly the sort of thing that God always does. We want the big, we want the flashy, we want the paradigm shifting experience that no one can deny. But remember, there's only one Passover. There's only one, even though all throughout the Old Testament and all throughout the ministry of Jesus, that one event is repeatedly referred to. There's one. Because often what God is doing is in the smaller details that require a little bit more patience and a lot more imagination. But if we can attend to them, we can see profound things that God is up to. And I remember when this shift happened to me, we were driving in the car somewhere along 290. And we were in the middle of a years-long experience of inexplicable rejection and difficulty and opposition in ministry that when we would bring up with people, no one really seemed to understand why. No one seemed to have any sort of insight. And even if you confronted the folks that were part of it, they seemed to look at us like we're crazy. And I I was in a long season where I was just wrestling with this, thinking all sorts of things, mostly about myself, mostly convinced I've really... I've really screwed up my life. I really must be insufferable or incompetent or whatever. And we were driving down 290 and I was just having this rant in my head, telling God about all the ways he had really caused me to waste my life. And I'll never forget as clear as day, seeing a picture of Jesus with a crown of thorns and God saying to me, spiritual authority only comes through suffering. There are a kind of riches. There are certain kinds of gifts that only come through pain. 
There are certain kinds of gains and insight and understanding that can only come when you face the struggle head on. When you don't run from it, when you don't medicate it, when you don't pretend like it's not there, but you can be honest and direct and real and you can say this hurts and there's no quick fix and I don't understand what God is doing. That's where God does incredible work. And since that time, I've started to notice some very odd things that struck me somewhat as odd because I know myself. Uh, I'm a little awkward. I'm definitely a lot intense. Uh, I'm focused. Some people have told me I'm intimidating. Uh, I don't see it, but, you know, that's part of the problem. And yet over the years, I've had people come to me and say things like, you've made me feel safe in church for the first time. I don't know what that is. Again, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not, I'm not that uh, charismatic or compelling. I know I'm weird. But what I've learned directly, God is doing something. And often the riches that God gives to us through suffering are not things that we can always look at that we can easily claim. I couldn't tell you what, what I've done differently. I couldn't tell you what I've learned that would have that effect on somebody. I have no idea. But I've started to see God do things enough that I recognize I don't have to know. The gift for me is being able to carry a story like that the rest of my life. Talk about a gift when you've spent most of your 20s feeling like, man, I must just be impossible to be around. And then unprompted, someone says something like that. That is the gift. That has carried me for two years. You don't know what God can do through the challenges you face, but sometimes it's so much easier to cling to our comforts. Sometimes it's so much easier because I know that I'm good at this, so if I can just do what I'm good at, then my career's gonna be stable or I'm gonna accomplish this other thing because really what you're afraid of is losing your comfort losing your sense of identity as successful. And I'm not saying that if you really let God do with your life what he wants to do, that he's always and every time gonna take those things away. He might not, but he might. But I can tell you what you will find on the other side, what you will, what you will discover as you embrace the things that God has brought you through or is bringing you through, that there are tremendous riches waiting for you on the other side if you will let grace do its work. Because this story is also a warning against resisting what God wants to do and opposing it. And there's this very interesting interplay that happens throughout all of the plagues and this entire interaction between Pharaoh and Moses. As we get into verses four through nine, in the heart of what we wanna look at, I want to remind us that grace protects what karma kills. Grace protects what karma kills. And I use that word karma intentionally because I want us to reckon with the fact that God is not opposed to the idea that when the world works on its own terms, we get what we deserve. In in this sense, this is a very biblical idea, karma. Read the book of Proverbs. Read places in like James where they talk about the way that the world works 
it is very much the kind of place where you reap what you sow. It is very true that when the world operates according to its own terms, when you're a good person, good things tend to happen to you, and when you're not, they don't. This is just simply another way of talking about God giving us over. Because good things happening to us might not actually be a good thing. And that in the end, if we let that way of thinking and we let the world operate on its own terms, what we discover in the end is not actually life. It's not actually good. It's not actually comfort, but it is uh, death surrounding us. Lives fall apart every time. And I'm convinced as we look at this, starting in verse four, what we are seeing is not God maliciously and meticulously murdering an entire nation. What this is, is God taking his gracious restraint off and finally letting Pharaoh see, this is what you get when you insist on your way. This is what happens. So in verse four, in verse four, we're told that Moses implied goes back to Pharaoh because in verse nine, uh, or verse eight, he leaves from Pharaoh. So we can assume that he goes back to Pharaoh to say this, that at midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill and the firstborn of the cattle, there will be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. And once again, just as what is happening is sort of a, a subtle reversal of fates, as Israel came into Egypt and enriched people and found themselves impoverished that the beginning of this Exodus story, what we find is a uh, fearful tyrant murdering children. Wherever there is fear and wherever there are tyrants, children pay the price. It's a universal principle. So chapters before, it was God's people that suffered. The sons of Israel that were brought out of their mother's arms into the street and killed? Should it surprise us then that in the last act, as God has repeatedly brought plagues upon Egypt, if for no other reason, some some scholars think that each one of these plagues somehow is connected to a different Egyptian deity, Other commentators think that it's just sort of an attack on the Egyptian way of life. Some think that it's entirely focused on Pharaoh himself. It's one of those things that's interesting, but the text doesn't really say, because what the text focuses on is that there is this repeated cycle that after so many, Moses and Aaron go back to Pharaoh and essentially ask him, will you relent? Each one of these plagues, each one of these trials is an opportunity for Pharaoh to repent. And what happens instead is this sort of interplay between uh, what is commonly translated as Pharaoh hardening his own heart or the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart. And it's actually more fair to say, to capture the sense of the word, not sort of like the Lord is imposing this resistance on Pharaoh, but in the sense that God is strengthening his heart, that he can 
more boldly act according to his own motivations, according to his own impulses and his own desires. Because there's always these moments, especially in the early plagues, when he seems to have this openness. He seems like maybe he is gonna relent, but as soon as the plague passes, then he just hardens his heart again. And as we get further into the plagues, it becomes more and more focused on uh, his heart being hardened, but there's this sense in which God is the one doing the hardening. And it's prompted this debate for centuries. Who's, who's really in charge here? Who's really hardening what? Is it, is it God or is it Pharaoh? Is there a sense of determinism or is there some free will here? And I, it's not that I don't think that those are worthwhile things to wrestle with, but really more clearly what's happening is that through each one of these events, God is still very much at work in Pharaoh. But as he continues to resist and continues to oppose and continues to harden himself to what God wants to do, God is working in him, but it's to actually help him more clearly express what's in his heart and to act according to it. So he's not having this sort of false repentance or um, giving people the wrong idea. That as we get to the end, we see more and more clearly the real Pharaoh. And the real Pharaoh is cold and indifferent and heartless because he knows he's had nine instances of these guys coming into his courtroom and saying, hey, our God's gonna do this and him going, yeah, whatever. And then it happens. So he has no reason to doubt that if God is coming through these men and saying, I'm gonna kill the firstborn of everything in Egypt, just like you or maybe your father killed all of the firstborn sons, it's coming back on you. He would have every reason to believe, yeah, this is probably gonna happen. But how cold, how indifferent, how arrogant for Pharaoh to not care. To not care about his cattle, to not care about his slaves, to not even care about his own son. What God has exposed in Pharaoh is a heartless monster of a man that he always was. And if we live according to karma, one way or another, those dead parts of our heart will become the most real, the most upfront, the most obvious thing about us. Verse seven, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And that is a profound statement of grace, that God makes a distinction based purely on his own goodness. Because it's not like Israel had really been accommodating. And it's not like they're about to. We know how this story goes. But when grace is allowed to do its work, even when there is resistance and even when there is opposition, even when we don't like what God is doing and we accuse him of horrible things, grace ensures that still underneath all of that is like in the words of Job, though he slay me yet, I will trust him. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be obvious. It doesn't have to be a big show, but it's there and grace will do that. 
Grace warms the, the heart that karma has frozen, has killed. Grace moves in us in ways that we might not think, that we might not recognize, but grace is at work nonetheless. Or as according to a a poem that Whitney shared with me by Meister Eckhart called An Unknowing That Makes Room. I often think it is my work to find you And in the tangle of my life, I stumble into brambles of doubt and pits of uncertainty and wonder where you're hiding. And then I remember, you seek and I'm found. You seek and I'm found. Because there is a profound difference between the firstborn of Egypt and the firstborn of Israel. So much so that God will, at this point, begin to call this entire people my son. That you are my son, the firstborn. It becomes so common that when the prophet Hosea is prophesying to the people, he speaks the words of the Lord to the people saying that out of Egypt I've brought my son. Not my people, not a nation, not a political state, my son. That he relates to his people as a father. And then in Matthew, when Jesus, curiously enough, or maybe not, curiously enough, as is so often the case, another fearful, murderous tyrant takes out his fear on children. And so Joseph and Mary and a young Jesus find refuge in Egypt until that king dies. And Matthew records the same statement out of Hosea 11, talking about Jesus and Mary and Joseph coming back out of Egypt into Israel when he is a young boy. And he quotes Hosea saying, out of Egypt, I have called my son. And it's but a few verses later that that same Jesus is coming out of the waters of the Jordan and God speaks to everyone there listening, this is my son. It's almost as if this is intentional. It's almost as if God is trying to tell us something. That this entire nation is represented in God's eyes through his grace, through his active engagement in the world. And he says, these people are my son. These people that will go astray, they will struggle, they will lose their way, they are my son. And the one that they've waited for, that they've longed for, that they have prayed for and hoped that this would actually be real and not just God making big promises. That when God himself comes, when Jesus is in the flesh, he replays this entire story. He reenacts all of the history of Israel through these simple things. So that when God is talking about his 
the nation of Israel and Hosea, and he calls them his son. And he says the same verses about Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. We recognize that what Jesus is doing is replaying the story with a very different end. Because at this point in Exodus 11, if you weren't born into the family, it was really hard to become a son. But when the firstborn son, begotten of the father before the creation of the world in whom all things were created and in whom all things hold together, when he suffers, then freely anyone can become a son or a daughter freely anyone can move out of this world of karma that is cold and indifferent and calculating and into the lively, warm embrace of grace. And there is freedom to be found so that just like Israel, we don't have to live in the inescapable cycle of karma working out whatever it's gonna do to us because it doesn't care but God's active grace begins to intervene so that these things that seem inevitable and unavoidable can stop in an instant. These promises that God is giving to Pharaoh, this is what's gonna happen that will go from the greatest of you to the least. We're told that for Egypt, the dog's not even gonna wake up for them. He's not even gonna stir that nothing will even touch them. They won't even get a scratch. Because the real unstoppable force in this world isn't karma, but it's grace. God's real active intent at every moment, in every way, for every person is an invitation towards grace. That our picture of God just sort of passively offering grace, but actively bringing down the hammer on every little thing we do. Every motivation is off, so I gotta beat that into submission is not the picture of the real God. He is constantly, actively intervening in kindness and grace to us. And that whatever struggle we have is actually in his hands becomes a way to him Henry Nouwen said that contradictions can bring us into touch with a deeper longing for the fulfillment of a desire that lives beneath all desires and that only God can satisfy. Contradictions, thus understood, create the friction that help us move towards God. That in the hands of grace, struggle, suffering, difficulty, uncertainty, disappointment, aren't punishments, they're not insurmountable troubles. They're merely contradictions that create, as he says, friction that move us towards God, that pull us out of this world of karma, out of this cold and indifferent passive world, out of the world where deserts can go on for decades, never once having anything beautiful or lively in them and in an instant become the most beautiful, most scenic place on the planet. That's what grace does. That's how grace works. And finally, looking at verse 10, that grace releases what pride hides. And this is where we see most clearly as sort of the final, uh, the final indication in the story about what's gonna happen. 
It's this simple little reminder that God's been warning for this moment, all of these chapters, all of these verses, and it's about to happen. In verse 10, Moses and Aaron did all of these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. This isn't just uh, summing up Exodus 11. It's summing up all of these chapters up to this point that everything up until this point has led to this moment, this one opportunity where maybe Pharaoh would relent. But as we touched on earlier, that his heart has been so hardened, he has become so resistant to the things of God. And so now God is letting him have what he's wanted. He is strengthening Pharaoh's heart to act according to his convictions. Even what they're about to do is going to be painful and difficult. And I don't think it does us any good really to make light of this because the truth is there's something in the human heart. There's something about us that we can see these incredible things directly from the hand of God. And it still not have the effect that we think it would. So many of us, especially uh, when we go through a season when we're really coming open to the work of the Spirit and recognizing that He does do far more than maybe we were taught to recognize. We can kind of get caught up in this uh, exuberance for wanting to see greater things, more flashy things, more impressive things that the Spirit would do in any instant. And it's not that we don't want to see God do miracles. We do. We want that because he's real, because he's present, and because we have every reason to believe that he'll still do them. But it's also very possible that God could give us those things and we could grow more indifferent to him. As odd as that sounds, when we say it out loud, it seems crazy. Like, no, of course not. But consider how many times throughout the ministry of Jesus do people come to him and say, hey, show us the sign. Give us something. And he goes, not even, it's not even worth talking about. We're not even gonna discuss it. Because on so many occasions, he even says to them that it doesn't matter what you would see. Moses himself could come back from the dead and you still wouldn't get it. I could call down the stars and you would still think, no, this guy, this is some black magic. You wouldn't understand because God knows our hearts more than we do. God understands what's going on in here more than we do. And that God bringing those things to light, allowing them to be seen, that so often feels so vulnerable and shaming is actually the best gift of grace God could give us. Because as the author of Hebrews says in chapter 12, that God only disciplines those he loves. And there's a vast chasm of difference between God's discipline and God's judgment. God's discipline is active. It is intentional. Because like any loving father, he's not gonna let us destroy ourselves. But God's judgment throughout all of the Bible is that giving over. Okay, whatever you want. Have it. Like in C.S. Lewis's novel, The Great Divorce, he describes hell as essentially people getting what they want forever. 
in, in a vivid, imaginative way that only C.S. Lewis can really describe, it is one of the bleakest, hopeless series of chapters you'll ever read. And it's gotta be the most true thing. Because what could be more awful than just getting what you want forever? But unless we're willing to let God open us up a bit and let us see what's really happening in here, that same pride that would destroy Pharaoh, that would destroy Egypt, can destroy us too. Because we're no different. We can be just as proud, just as arrogant, just as resistant to the things of God, just as demanding that we have something flashy and big and impressive. And God is saying, the grace I want to give you is small. But just because it's small doesn't mean it's not profound. Just because it works slowly doesn't mean it can't change you in an instant. And I'm convinced that the biggest threat to the church, the biggest threat to the gospel, if there is such a thing, is not politics, it's not the LGBT community, it's not refugee, it's not anything that you could uh, find on any news channel or social media somebody ranting about. The absolute undeniable biggest threat to the kingdom of God is our own pride and our own self-righteousness. And the idea of what happens when grace gives way to karma ought to scare us just enough because it is a far more terrifying thought. As again, Hebrews says, it is a far more terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God than it is to simply let him do his work, to simply let him have his way. Because if I've learned anything over these years, while it may be not what I've asked for, And while it may be hard, he is good. He will care for you and he will not destroy you. A year ago, a year ago this time, I was was pretty sure by the end of the year, uh, we'd be declaring bankruptcy. And I'm not joking. And we didn't. And don't get me wrong, it was a hard year. It was scary. It was challenging. It pressed in ways that I never really wanted to deal with. And yet God was there. Those things that I was so convinced this would happen if God doesn't act in these ways, none of those things happened. And yet also God didn't act in the ways that I insisted he act. And I find myself now, though, in a place that I never really thought I would be. Uh, And some days I still don't really want to be, if I can be honest. And yet, having, having situations like ones that I had mentioned before, things happening where I'm not even paying attention to what's going on, and it's like God just sort of taps on my shoulder and it's like, do you see what, what's happening? Do you see what I'm doing in people? And you're completely oblivious to it, which is common. I tend to be oblivious to a lot of things. 
But when God does his work, it might be scary, it might be challenging, it might press you beyond what you think. But there are so many gifts to be had on the other side. There's so many important lessons that you need and only he can teach you. And you don't want him, you don't want him to give you over. You don't want him to give you what you want. It could be the worst thing that ever happened to you. So let grace do its work. Let God's spirit do its work. Whatever he's pressing in you now, let it do its work. Don't fight it. Let him deliver you through this. And it might not, the end result might not be what you think. It might not be what you want, but I'm pretty sure it won't be what you're terrified of. It'll be something a lot better, a lot more wonderful, a lot simpler. And man, there's a lot less celebrity when God does it. And that's a good thing. God does his most beautiful work in simple, out-of-the-way places like that valley in Chile. If it weren't for the internet, we'd probably never know. And that might actually be better that way. But at least now we have another reminder that in an instant, a lifeless place can become vibrant and beautiful if we simply let God do his work. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are so persistent in intervening in our lives and in history and that your intervention is not judgment, but it's grace. That when you work, God, it is always grace. It is always kindness. It's always mercy and compassion. God, help us. Don't let us be the people that cling to our comfort that cling to our own ideas of what we want or what we need or what would be good for us. Give us the faith to trust you, Lord, even even if it means our picture has to die just a bit. Or maybe we've got to throw it out and you want to give us a new one. God, teach us to be collaborators with you, partners with you, active participants in the grace that you want to pour out in this world. And God, let us see your promise that when we let grace do its work, it is a beautiful thing. It might be simple, it might be small, but God, is it beautiful. And it can't be found any other way. Holy Spirit, whatever work you've been doing, whatever you've started, I pray that you would continue to do it today. Continue to work in us. Continue to free us from those things that keep us resistant to you, that keep us pulling from you. Like Augustine used to say, God, command what you want, but let me want what you command. We believe that you're good, but God, do we not believe you? Help our unbelief. Help our unbelief, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Mm-hmm.